Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour today is Amity Schles, author of four New York Times bestsellers, including The Forgotten Man, A New History of the Great Depression, and Coolidge, a biography of the 30th president. Uh, Schles chairs the board of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation. She gave a presentation in Logan yesterday, hosted by Strata, a Logan-based public policy think tank, and by USU's Center for the Study of American Constitutionalism. Amity Schles writes for Forbes and National Review. She spent more than 10 years as a columnist for the Financial Times and Bloomberg. And Amity Schles says that Calvin Coolidge is an underappreciated figure in American history. We're going to talk about Coolidge and his times, also about the 1930s and the Great Depression. We'll also hear some stories that Schley's said should have been included in Ken Burns' film, The Roosevelt's. We'll even hear a clip from The Andy Griffith Show. You'll have to stay tuned to see how that fits in. I talked with Amity Schley's in our studios yesterday. Let's start with Coolidge, 30th president, and the stereotype is laconic to the point of being invisible, in fact, it, you know, there were caricatures of him at the time he served and then after. Um, you've written a biography of, of the man, I guess, to, to, to start with. What, uh, what are the misconceptions? What do we not know about Coolidge that you think we should? Well, well silence doesn't always imply weakness. In the modern world, it's supposed to because we yap around. We're used to a yapping culture, but Coolidge came from that culture where the less said, the better. And in his case, um, he developed silence into an art form. Wonderful to not hear him in the way he withheld. uh, And and when he did choose to speak, therefore, his words had more meaning. Uh, That's quite interesting. There was also, there was a specific political purpose to his not speaking. As he told other politicians, Uh, When someone came to you to ask for something, if you said absolutely nothing, they would wind down sooner, the mendicant, the lobbyist. And uh, that's very important for a president who wants to say no. Coolidge wanted to say no because he believed government did better when it did less. Hmm. Uh, So your presentation um, here at Utah State University was was on um, the man who said no. That's right. And, you know, there are two premises now. One uh, politician can't say no because he won't get elected or he'll get de-elected if he says no in office. And the other is uh, it's bad for the economy to say no where we should spend. Spending makes the economy better. And both these premises he rejects uh, and, and, by the way, disproves because, first of all, he said no. And he was in an election. As the listeners know, Coolidge came to the office In the 20s, he was vice president, and President Harding died. So Coolidge becomes president. People said, what, lame duck, right? What you say, oh, he'll never make it. And then Coolidge had an election of his own. He was the Republican candidate. There was a strong third party, the progressives. And usually when there's a progressive running, well, uh, it goes to the Democrats. In this case, Coolidge, the Republican, beat the progressives and the Democrats combined. He was enormously popular for his no-saying. And the economy also uh, explains why, because in the 20s, because the government held back, you can ascribe causality, the economy grew very fast. There was a lot of um, peace and prosperity in the country. It was an excellent decade for the middle class. People got, well, a Model T, then a Model A, uh, and they got indoor plumbing, which is the mark of civilization. They got radios. So so uh, he, at his time, um, was silent. Uh, did a lot by not doing much, and the people recognize that. Hmm. And an attractive feature, I'd, uh, I think, to you and, and to a lot of people, is the fact that the federal government was smaller when he left office than when he inherited office. Right. If you go on the stump for him and enumerate his achievements, Coolidge left office with a smaller government than when he came in over those 66, 67 months. And the question is, well, Amity, that's my name. Do you mean real? Do you mean nominal? Do you mean he reduced the increase, which is what we tend to say when we say cutting back? We mean reduction and in increase. No, he actually literally cut, no matter how you cook it, real nominal. Vanilla sprinkles on top. He actually cut it, uh, and that was quite a feat because it was peacetime. Coming out of a war, the government will cut the government. That, right? That's what mm. it does. It will cut itself. Okay, we have to do that. We spent, But in a peacetime stretch, it's really hard to do because the country feels magnanimous. It has 
coins clinking in its pocket. And it thinks, well, the government should be magnanimous, too. We as a society can do more. Coolidge didn't think um, that went it went that way. He thought the people would do better when the government did less. You open the book, uh, Coolidge, with a, with a gripping prologue. Uh, I couldn't put it down. It was uh, So you start with Oliver, uh, a great, great, great uncle, right? Um, uh, Coolidge, living in Vermont. Um, and he's in jail for a debt, some $24. Um, and uh, there's a family dispute over land uh, with uh, the great-great-grandfather of, of Calvin Coolidge. But I wonder if there, do you connect those dots, this, this I don't know, this idea of, of debt and, the, and the, the horrible pressing down of debt upon people that time that Coolidge was famously, uh, some would say miserly, you know, pinched a penny. He was concerned about debt. Well, this is an incredibly American story. Uh, the question of whether we should care about debt and can and must, and at times we must. That's what Oliver Coolidge discovered. He's a very interesting man. Um, and it's also a story for all of us in our background. Why did people leave Vermont? We know there are many reasons. One was religion. Another, though, was debt. John Deere, for example, left Vermont with a debt behind him and went and founded a very important company in the Midwest. Got to start over. That's very American. Start over now. And there are many Coolidge's, not just Oliver, who left New England and went to the West or the Midwest first and started over, leaving behind them uh, something bad and often a debt. So the question is, is that right to leave a debt behind? When is a debt too oppressive? When do you need to pay it? That was a question that was always in Coolidge's mind, which is why I liked it. And this Oliver was kind of a skeleton in the closet. And uh, Coolidge didn't know much about him. He, his father was this more successful brother's descendant, right? Mm-hmm. So, so all this is going on in his mind. And, you know, for the future of our country right now, it seems as though debt doesn't matter because our interest rates are so low. But we all know that a currency can be challenged, even the U.S. dollar, and our debts, our government debts, our public debts may matter one day. So it's in our minds, too, the question of debt. So uh, there's, there's some anecdotes that you, you put in the book. Um, Coolidge, what did he rented out part of his house while he was in Washington. I mean, there, there are many stories. Maybe you could tell a few of these. He, he was famous for, for Coolidge, being tight Coolidge with money. made a new story. He was a wonderful marketer of his own thrift, and he did that quite consciously. For example, the Coolidges rented half of a two-family in Northampton, Massachusetts, quite modest, all the way through the period when he was governor of the state of Massachusetts. Massachusetts was an important state. It was like New York at a time when there weren't as many people out here in the West. And here was the governor who should live back bay in a fine house and belong to seven clubs with a wife packed in a two-family back home. He did that because he was comfortable at home, because many of his constituents were at home, and because he thought it was a good sign that he wouldn't be corrupt. How do you sustain a house in Back Bay if you're just a governor? Well, you need friends' help. And he was extremely wary of corruption and knew that people sensed corruption when political leaders spend like crazy on their personal lives. Clever. Then when he was in Washington, they lived in the Willard Hotel, which is fancy, but they didn't weren't moving up. They lived where the preceding vice president had lived. Um, under Wilson. Why was that? Because a precedent was there, so that meant you had some cover for what you were doing? Well, that's where vice presidents live in the New Willard. And uh, there was talk of a vice presidential mansion. Someone even thought of offering one because now the vice president has a residence, right? But the Coolidge's, especially Calvin, they weren't too pleased with that idea because it would be a big responsibility and it would make them look rich. When you're a servant of the people, you have to think of the people first. I mean, if you really want to get into the debts, uh, I, I, one of the fun things we uncovered for this book, thank you, Vermont Historical Society, and thank you, um, the historic site, um, we found the diary of the housekeeper who made the meals in the White House. And Coolidge actually apparently sacked a housekeeper who spent too much. We know this because she went and wrote a tell-all afterwards and hired a thrifty New England lady. And he would write, when she would write, bought two cans of olives. He noticed that she saved several thousand dollars year over year, and he wrote, fine improvement. (laughs) 
he was actually obsessed with saving in a way that ground on his children. We all know of a father like that. But but it was out of personal instinct, one. He saved a lot. He, they, he knew what poverty was. And two, out of political good sense. Hmm. And so this translates into the political realm as well. He, he believed government should balance its books. Well, you have a trade-off here, right? When we, even in the modern political discussion, some people say if you cut tax rates, well, you might even get more money. That is a business principle, too. Uh, in Walmart, you cut the price and make up profits on the volume. It's the same principle, uh, and it's one reason Utah thrives. Tax situation is better than Vermont, uh, right? So that's one answer. The other is you, you. that's a little risky, that proposition that if you cut rate, you get more money. So w- w- why don't we just balance the books? And Coolidge wasn't sure what he thought. I think he was more on the cut the prices, that is, cut the spending just in case. Maybe we'll get extra money if we cut the rates, but meantime, I'm going to cut the spending and uh, uh, hope I don't get in trouble. And to dramatize this, he named his pets the following. Uh, uh, a mayor of Johannesburg sent him two lion cubs twins, and he named them Budget Bureau and Tax Reduction. <laughs> Now, he didn't name them Mrs. Beasley. He didn't name them Bo. He named them Budget Bureau and Tax Reduction, and and they were supposed to be twins, so he fed them even Stephen. You could imagine the steak going to the lion cup. They went Mm -hmm. to the zoo, of course, because he didn't want a giant lion called Tax Reduction and some runt called Budget Bureau. Mm -hmm. No, no, they had to be even. That was his philosophical point. He did, however, cut rates in tax, and they did very often get more revenue. It's right there in the statistics of income, if our scholars listening want to go look. Hmm. His supply-side experiment worked. Hmm. Now, you can see with, with, with the way his policies were, his personal life, that um, he should have become maybe more of an icon to at least conservatives, right? I mean, Reagan admired him, but even among conservatives, he hasn't enjoyed a, a reputation or, or am i wrong i don't know you you you've oh, seen we've with... i mean please come to plymouth notch where coolidge was born it's a beautiful historic village it's only it's less than 30 miles from where joseph smith was born sharon vermont hmm. it's where a lot of us have come from whatever our background that part of new england uh, and then left um so many i would say many people not just conservatives not just republicans make a pilgrimage to Coolidge to see that incredibly humble and beautiful site. And we have all activities all summer, including reading from his autobiography. He was born on the 4th of July. Why the current GOP doesn't like him? They haven't thought it through. That's one reason. Uh, they really haven't. He's the forgotten president. He's a great, great um, model, especially should interest rates go up. Um, but the other reason is they have told themselves through their political consultants, that austerity doesn't sell. It's the scarlet letter. A, I'm not for austerity. Well, you know, guess what? Austerity works real well when the government practices it. It doesn't work so well um, when it's imposed by the government upon individuals. I force you to save whatever you... That's impinging upon freedom. But when the government saves, the evidence is it it does a little better, uh, and there's room in the private sector to grow. So so I'm not sure Republicans won't, or the official party won't yet come to him. We had a very nice endorsement from, you know, over time from some of them uh, for the Coolidge book. We don't need that, though. Uh, Coolidge is so attractive, he, he sells himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wonder, I mean, you've said that uh, Coolidge was silent on purpose sometimes, silent like a fox, and... Uh, but maybe has not undergone a rehabilitation in, in reputation in the same way that uh, Eisenhower. You know, Eisenhower, the view was, you know, kind of doddering grandfatherly, but it, as a reappraisal happened and behind the scenes and after his administration, it was determined that he was, it was very purposeful. You know, the, those famous press conferences where there were no verbs, and that, you know, it was very... He was. That's very. He's ar- clever. That's very that way, army. You know. No verbs. You just move from abstract noun to abstract noun, right? <laughs> That's right. We, we all have yes. that tendency as we age. It's it's pretty bad. Yeah. So so, you know. 
I think behind your question is the question, could he be appreciated because he wasn't good on television? Well, one, he might have been good on television. He was actually pretty good on the radio, Coolidge. We think of Roosevelt as our first radio president, Franklin Roosevelt, the fireside chats. Coolidge was awesome on radio. We just don't have the tapes, so we can't experience it. They said his nasal New England voice was like wire that cut through the airwaves, rather clear and distinct. And he did some things first. He, he read essentially the State of the Union. They called it something else on the radio through some elaborate hookups uh, in the early 20s. Wow. Uh, and he appreciated radio. It, it saved his voice was a great concern for him. He always had respiratory problems and it saved him his voice. He, he told a friend or a visitor to the White House, I'm very lucky um, that the radio came at this time because it enables me to continue politics. I'm not bad at it, and I don't have to ride around in a buggy buggy making speeches. Uh, You know, can we ever have someone like that, though, who's more quiet? Absolutely. Uh, Around the time the Coolidge book came out, Mrs. Thatcher died. And, uh, you know, you have to think about English history, about the history of Britain, and and the Tory party in the 70s. Does anyone think the Tory party really wanted some mean, scary, almost... You know, lady to run it? Absolutely not. It was the party of compassionate conservatism. Heath, it will be nice, almost like labor, right? Then England fell into economic trouble. And suddenly people said, who can cut? Who can tell us to cut? And suddenly this, um, I won't even call her a nanny figure because she's better than that. This regal prime minister, Margaret Thatcher, emerged. And as tough as she was, people wanted her even tougher. That's what happens when you have trouble. And uh, to prepare for trouble, you need someone like that, too. Voters see it more easily, though, when there is trouble. So as soon as the interest rate goes up or the dollar is challenged, everyone's going to be looking around for the modern Calvin Coolidge, even no matter how poor he is on television. Hmm. I want to play a uh, clip from the Andy Griffith Show. And it, I'll have you put on your headphones here so you can you can hear this. Um, I'm not sure what that says about me that I immediately went to uh, pop culture. When I thought, but the, I remembered this uh, this uh, passage. This will get us into the fact that there are some quotes attributed to Coolidge because they're the kind of things Coolidge would say. So let's hear this. This is uh, Floyd the Barber with uh, Andy Griffith. Hi, Floyd. Ninety-two. It feels it. I just looked at the thermometer over the door. You know what it is? 92? 92. 92. Hmm. Like an oven inside. Hot? Oh, it is hot. Hmm. Well, as Mark Twain said, everybody complains about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. He say that? Mm-hmm. I thought Calvin Coolidge said that. <laughs> no. No, Floyd, Calvin Coolidge didn't say that. What'd Calvin Coolidge say? I don't know. You sure Mark Twain didn't get that in Calvin Coolidge? No, Floyd. Mark Twain lived before Calvin Coolidge. Oh, he couldn't have gotten from no. But it's hot. I always love that. What did Calvin Coolidge say? So that that gets us into, you know, a general thing we, we... misquote people and but sometimes it's so like the thing that that say calvin coolidge would say and the quote i'm thinking of which you uh, talk about your book i I can't pull it up here uh, directly but it's uh, he talks about termination says termination persistence will will get you to the prize Uh, genius won't talent won't all these other things will will not get you uh, success, but persistence, determination, will, which typified his life. That's right. It's called the persistence quote, and he says, talent will not. You know, the world is full of derelicts who, who didn't do much. Persistence is, is the most important thing. Uh, but Coolidge didn't write that. And one of the, it's so fun to research a presidential history because you, you never stop the work and you always un, undig things. And one of the things I and David Petruja, another Coolidge biographer, undug was this famous Coolidge persistence quote was not his. How did we do that? We found it uh, in archives of religious newspapers from the 19th century. So it was sort of boilerplate. People had it on the wall. 
Uh, it's a wonderful quote. I'm sure Coolidge quoted it, and I'm sure he didn't plagiarize. He was an honorable man. But uh, the, the myth started that that was his quote because it was used in a New York Life advertising campaign, the persistence quote attributed to Coolidge. And uh, he was uh, not really around to stop it because he died in 1933, around the time of that. Mm. If you just joined us, we're uh, talking with Amity Schlaes. We're talking on Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Amity Schlaes is author of four New York Times bestsellers, including The Forgotten Man, A New History of the Great Depression, The Forgotten Man Graphic. It's an illustrated version of the same book. Coolidge, a biography of the 30th president, and The Greedy Hand, How Taxes Drive Americans Crazy. Schlaes chairs the board of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation, and she gave a presentation in Logan yesterday hosted by Strata, a Logan-based public policy think tank, and by USU's Center for the Study of American Constitutionalism. Amity Schlaes writes for Forbes and National Review. She spent more than 10 years as a columnist for Financial Times and Bloomberg, also wrote for the Wall Street Journal. She's winner of the Hayek Prize and currently chairs the jury for that prize. She's a magna cum laude graduate of Yale College and is married to fellow journalist and editor Seth Lipinski. Lipinski's have four children. Amity Schlaes says that uh, Calvin Coolidge was an underappreciated figure in American history. We've been talking about that, we'll continue to talk about that, his times as well, and about the 1930s and the Great Depression. We'll also hear some stories that Schlaes said could have been included in Ken Burns' film, The Roosevelts. More following the break. It's a modular, zesty garden this week. First is a green room discussion about including the ficus plant. Adding fiber to your diet is much easier than you think it is, is heard on Yes, You Can. What were the first animals to use wings as a means of getting around? The answer is on bug bites. Then all you need to know about groundhogs will be heard on living with wildlife. Next, it's going native. Make sure to include the artemisia for your drought-tolerant garden. Then we'll finish with Petals and Pros. It's the Zesty Garden this Thursday morning at 10 from Utah Public Radio. 80% of California's water goes to agriculture, which is 1% of the state's economy there. This week, as UPR continues coverage of water topics, Marketplace's Sarah Gardner looks at the Central Valley and the possibility of severe drought there. And throughout the week, tune into UPR for our Water Source Facts, part of the 2015 Year of Water Programming Project here on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU Partners in Business Information Technology Conference with keynote speaker Michael Rombetsy, Vice President of Technical Operations at Etsy, Thursday, February 26th at USU Eccles Conference Center. At the USU Eccles Conference Center. Details at partners.usu.edu. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Amity Schlaes, author of four New York Times bestsellers, including The Forgotten Man, A New History of the Great Depression, and Coolidge, a biography of the 30th president. Amity Schlaes chairs the board of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation. She was in Logan yesterday for an event hosted by Strata, a Logan-based public policy think tank, and by USU Center for the Study of American Constitutionalism. She says that Calvin Coolidge is an underappreciated figure in American history. We're talking about Coolidge and his times. We'll also be talking about the 1930s, the Great Depression. We'll hear some stories as well that Schlaes says could have been included in Ken Burns' film, The Roosevelts. And uh, we're on tape. I spoke with Amity Schlaes yesterday in our studios. We're talking about Coolidge, and we'll, we'll talk, if time permits, a little bit about the 1930s. That's the subject of The, of the Forgotten Man. I wonder if you could tell us a couple of... Um, maybe instances from Coolidge's life which typify that that determination and persistence, as you write in the book that uh, you know he almost didn't become vice president. He almost was uh, just a lame duck. He, you know, there were a lot of almost in his life. If you're feeling down, you've got to go to Coolidge because he'll make you feel better. He he almost didn't live. He had bad lungs. He almost didn't go to college. In fact, he flunked the college exam the first time and went home and pouted for a year got sick, had lay a bed, had to go to high school again, almost didn't make it socially in college, Amherst College. His college had a lot of fraternities, and Coolidge was not tapped, even though he wanted to be. 
until his senior year. He almost uh, didn't do okay in politics. He was constantly writing his father or in the law. He read the law. I don't know if I can make it. I almost didn't get a wife. If I can get a woman, but I haven't yet. You read his letters, you just hear one sort of a, uh, almost, uh, almost, uh, but he did. He did do it. And it was that perseverance. He said, if, you know, if I had, he did say many times, if I hadn't tried, I wouldn't have got there, the, that, that the persistence matters more than the talent. And that that's an important thing to say to yourself, because we all, oh, I'm not good enough. No, no, no. Most of us are probably good enough to do most things. Uh, and uh, he also did something else that was quite interesting. Nowadays, it's all about selling yourself pretty early too, more before you have the credentials or the or the skill. Coolidge would take a job and he wouldn't apply to a higher job. He would just do his job so well that the new job would come to him. Wonderful story. And you see it over and over again because first he, he lived in, in a, 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 it called itself a city, Northampton, Massachusetts. It was the county seat of Hampshire County, but it was a town. He lived there. Uh, well, then he went to this, you know, he was on the school board basically and then he da 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 in the town. They went to the state legislature. Then he came back. And he was mayor of Northampton. He went to Senate. All these things he did uh, every every year. He was in politics. Other people had hobbies. He had politics. He would say and he rose while he was lieutenant governor of Massachusetts, which meant he presided over the general court, the Senate. A very important job. More important than the vice president in the United States because you could actually vote more frequently. Uh, then he was governor, and he, you know, so uh, then he was a vice presidential candidate, and so on. So he he climbed this ladder um, with a lot of effort, uh, and it's an inspiring story. I'd like to transition now to the '30s. Um, you know, talking the '20s and previously, Coolidge uh, leaves the presidency in '29, is it? And so Hoover, uh, you know, gets saddled with the, you know, a lot of blame for the depression. I suppose, and, and for his, as progressives see it, inaction uh, in those years, in the early years of the Depression. I wonder about the, this idea of a smaller government, laissez-faire policies. Some came to blame the Depression on inattention by the government to, you know, to, to the capitalism, to, to the business side. Oh, absolutely. Well, think of it from Coolidge's point of view. Uh, he got out of college in the mid-1890s, which is around the time the Dow Jones Industrial Average came online. What is that? The stock index, right? That was a new thing. And he saw the Dow collapse six, seven times while he was an adult. It went down more than 40% in the early 20s. Well, but, but, but then it came back up. Why would this time be different? So he was very concerned about the stock market as the, his presidency came to a close because it went up to 381 where it had been 200, 100. That's a bubble, and he knew it. But he had seen it go down before and no Great Depression, and he also didn't believe it was the job of the president to intervene. Remember, at that time, there was no Securities and Exchange Commission. There was no Fed like we have it now. Mariner Eccles wrote the law that made the Fed more powerful. It wasn't so powerful in that way then. And it didn't see its job as being managing the economy. What I wrote, so so I actually wrote about this before. I wrote about Coolidge in a book called Forgotten Man, which you mentioned. The question is, what made the depression of 29 to 40, the Great Depression? What policy caused that double-digit unemployment for 10 years, which we hadn't had? What, what caused that Dow never to come back until 1953 or four. What caused that? And what I found in my research, which is made what made me like Coolidge, is that it was the government's fault. More or less, we changed policies about handling depressions in 1929. Here are three ways we did it. One, we had always let um, employers make a decision about pay when a downturn comes, and what they would do would be rather logical. Well, I have four employees. I like them. I can't pay them. So I'll ask them if they'll take a 10% cut, a 50% cut this month so I can keep them. I like them, and right? That, that's called letting wages go down. Uh, and we did that in the early 20s. We didn't want to do that in 29. Herbert Hoover didn't believe in that. He joined Henry Ford in saying, spend, spend, and keep. And he exhorted employers to keep wages up when they could ill afford it. That was beyond Henry Ford. Uh, and so what did they do? Well, they laid people off. 
because they had to keep wages up, so they just had fewer employees with high wages. Or they failed to rehire because the obligation imposed upon them uh, first with moral suasion by the president was to pay high. That uh, So that's one thing that you really want to look at, the, the labor history throughout the period, because, of course, this high wage policy was sustained through Hoover and strengthened under President Roosevelt. Some listeners will know the Davis-Bacon law, which puts upward pressure on wages. That comes from the Hoover period. Um, and then, of course, various labor laws under President Roosevelt, the most famous being the Wagner Act, that said minimum wage law. You've got to pay more people. Okay, if we have to, we will, but we'll have fewer staff. Uh, so, so that's the least discussed factor. There are many others. The arbitrariness of the monetary policy confused markets even when it was correct. Uh, so that's interesting. Well, we know there's not enough money, but we're not going to tell you how we're going to fix it. And we're going to change all the time. There was a thrilling battle, which is in this cartoon book, going on between Mariner Eccles and Morgenthau, Henry Morgenthau, the Treasury Secretary. So imagine the Fed head and the Treasury Secretary are fighting. And one of them wants to tighten and one doesn't. And the, their policies reflected that. Their policies conflict. The Fed and the Treasury are conflicting. What's the market to make of that? And that was a big factor in what we call the depression within the depression of the later 30s. At Eccles and Morgenthau couldn't stand each other after a point. It's a hilarious story about two kinds of leadership, Eccles being the more competent, I should add. Um, but Morgenthau did see things from time to time just because he was in this, this Treasury job for a long time around the White House. Um, we look in The Forgotten Man and what happened when we went off the gold standard. Okay, maybe we should have, but it was an awful surprise. Marcus didn't like that. Stock market went down. Um, if you want to put a headline on why the Great Depression was great, the answer is uncertainty generated by uh, uncertain government, by, by ambiguity and arbitrary behavior by the federal government. Remember, until this period, the federal government was not the biggest elephant in the room. The states and towns had together a bigger presence in the U.S. economy. Only under Roosevelt did we have the federal government outpace states and towns for peacetime period. And all of a sudden, once that shifted, it basically it stayed that way forever, right? The federal government is the bigger animal. Um, and uh, so what it does matters. Just have a few minutes left. Um, I was reading an interesting piece you uh, had in Forbes, and you're you're responding to the PBS series Ken Burns series Roosevelt's, which you know many people in America watched. And uh, you say American high schoolers will be learning their history from snippets or whole segments of that series for years to come. That's probably true. Um, but you say there are some stories that didn't make it into that documentary. What if you'd select one or two of those? What a corrective, perhaps, that should have been in in that series. Well, going after the... It's, it's a wonderful series. I hope you watch it. It's beautiful. The President Roosevelt persevered when he was crippled by polio, right? So, so but the... Um, going after the plutocrats backfired because then they hid. They didn't hire. Same same thing. So that that's an important story. And one of the things we cover in The Forgotten Man and in the in the Forgotten Man graphic, which is basically a cartoon book for you to share with your families about this period, including cast of characters and so on, is the persecution of the former Treasury Secretary, Andrew Mellon. Because that stands out. Mellon was like Greenspan. He was it's as if oh, President Obama would persecute Chairman Greenspan, and President Obama is too much of a gentleman for that. But Roosevelt had no hesitation of going after his predecessor's Treasury Secretary as a rich man. And Mellon was like Warren Buffett. And uh, so the, how do they invest taxes, right? That's how we always get them. And Morgenthau, or the Treasury Secretary, was avid to get his predecessor. It was a kind of ugly story. And what did Mellon do? Um, here he was, people saying he didn't pay enough taxes. He said, well, I can see why they're, they're going after me. But the Depression is just a mere bad quarter hour in the glorious history of the United States. What can I do of virtue while these people assail me? And he got together the National Gallery. That is the art gallery that you go to when you're in Washington. And it was kind of a serious show because he didn't say it's the Mellon Gallery. He called it the National Gallery. He was too righteous to give in to the vanity of naming something after himself. And that gallery was one of the best buildings, is one of the best on the mall. 
So in a way, he was showing Roosevelt, look, with your government money, you can build something, but I can build something too, maybe something better. He didn't fight back against the administration prosecuting him. He outclassed them. Mm. Andrew Mellon. Uh, it's interesting. We've made a couple of uh, connections between Coolidge and the LDS Church. I was thinking of one for responses to the Depression. Of course, uh, FDRs and, and ramping up the federal government response is, is famous. Um, there, was a, there were different stories going on, and you, you recount those in, uh, in The Forgotten Man. And in Utah, the leaders of the LDS Church, President Heber Grant, was quite skeptical of, of the FDR's response. He, he felt that uh, if you if you ramp it up too much, you get people on the dole, he's called it. He, he, on the dole, on right? On the dole. He, evils of the dole. And so the LDS Church uh, um, came up with their what's what's known as their welfare system today, which requires people to work, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so they the had these strains, and, and, and I'm guessing— haven't uh, haven't read The Forgotten Man, but there are other stories, right, uh, that well, would go alongside the story in Utah. Well, I neglect that story uh, but by, f- by focusing on Mariner Eccles, who did like more intervention. And also a very likable, competent man, I'm going to say, but more on the intervention end of it. He, f- he internalized the U.S. economy as if it were he were the patriarch of it. And uh, you, you could sense, though, in every town— a kind of resistance because when the federal government comes in and does all this, what does it do? It, it goes in someone else's space. Whose space is that? Well, first of all, the local community space. You say we don't have deposit insurance, but we have deposit insurance in our community. The insurance of our leadership and Eccles was a leader. I mean, there's in Forgotten Man we talk about a bank in Ogden that was failing, and he propped it up through community confidence. Um, uh, well, so if the federal government does all the work, what, what what is the community for? And it gets weakened. And we've seen that generally in the United States, that the community as rescuer, as provider of hospital, a provider of community health, community chest has been weakened because the federal government has gone into that space. The state, too, is weakened by the federal government. And, of course, specifically the community of faith is weakened. Oh, Coolidge had a wonderful uh, conference call. They had those in those days even in the 20s, with the Jewish community in New York. And he reminded them of something called the Stuyvesant Pledge. Have you ever heard of that, the Stuyvesant Pledge? I have Pledge? not heard, no. I haven't. Peter Stuyvesant was one of our founders in New York in the Dutch time, right? And Peter Stuyvesant didn't want a whole lot of migrant groups who he had to feed who might be in trouble. And the Jewish community in New York said to Peter Stuyvesant, essentially the mayor, here's our pledge, we'll take care of our own if you let us stay. And he did, and... They built up enormous hospitals and, long story short, for a long time, took care of their own. And Coolidge thanked them for that. He, Coolidge, respected what a community would achieve and knew that sometimes things work best when the community handles it. That wasn't the attitude in the 1930s, and uh, Coolidge knew it. He said, these aren't my times. And I'm sure many here felt that way, too. Much more to say, but uh, we have to close now. We've been talking with Amity Schlaes. Uh, Thank you so much. Thank you. Amity Schlaes is author of four New York Times bestsellers, including The Forgotten Man, A New History of the Great Depression, and Coolidge, a biography of the 30th president. Schlaes chairs the board of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation. Uh, She was in Logan yesterday to give a presentation on the USU campus, uh, hosted by Strata, a Logan-based public policy think tank, and by USU's Center for the Study of American Constitutionalism. Amity Schles writes for Forbes and National Review, spent more than 10 years as columnist for Financial Times and Bloomberg. She's winner of the Hayek Prize and currently chairs the jury for that prize. Uh, Magna cum laude graduate of Yale College. She's married to fellow journalist and editor Seth Lipinski, and they have four children. And uh, we heard of Calvin Coolidge, the 1930s as well. If you'd like to respond to this program, you can certainly do so at upraxis at gmail.com, on Twitter, at Utah Public Radio. And you can uh, go to our website, upr.org. Our thanks to Amity Schles, and our thanks to you. Uh, by the way, coming up tomorrow, we're going to conclude a fascinating series that's been going on uh, here at Utah Public Radio called The Cost of Oil. Uh, various uh, aspects of uh, the uh, lowering price of oil and uh, the, some other costs, ongoing costs of oil. We'll talk with 
a couple of guests tomorrow on the program. Benjamin Blau, Professor of Economics at Utah State University, and Ken Bassett, Vernal City Manager. Uona Basin, of course, is right in the thick of, uh, of any fluctuation in oil prices, any cost of oil. And uh, we'll ask Ken Bassett whether he thinks the, uh, the big boom is turning to bust now. Look at the economics of this with Benjamin Blau, and we hope to have you join us as well. So for today, for producers uh, Katie Swain and uh, Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Apogee Instruments, a Cash Valley company building small precision sensors that support global research in sustainable food production, renewable energy, and climate change. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Van Frank. The belief that there was no future for the LDS Church in the East motivated the Mormon Exodus West to the far side of the Rocky Mountains. But how did the Mormons know where they were going? Find out after this. I'm Cynthia Buckingham, director of the Utah Humanities Council. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by the Utah Humanities Council with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T.D. Foundation. UHC is proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories as part of our statewide tour of the Smithsonian exhibition, Journey Stories. Tune in each week for a new Utah Journey Story from the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. The Mormon migration that began in 1847 has distinctly shaped Utah's history. But how did LDS church leaders choose this place as their ultimate destination? As early as 1832, church founder Joseph Smith predicted that Mormons would settle in the Rocky Mountains. Conflicts with their neighbors had already forced them to relocate from New York to Ohio to Missouri and to Illinois. When Smith died in 1844, the Mormons faced yet another exit. Brigham Young, who assumed leadership after Smith, aimed to move the church far away from its detractors. But where? Church leaders studied several potential sites, including Oregon, Texas, Vancouver Island, California, and focused on locations in the West where Mormons could govern themselves in isolation. They relied heavily on John Fremont's 1843 Western Expedition Report, which included information about the Valley of the Great Salt Lake. Another resource was Lansford Hastings' 1845 Emigrant's Guide to Oregon and California, which promoted a new route through that same valley. As more information became available, Mormon leaders had to rethink their options. Oregon might be too far north. Both Fremont and Hastings noted the trouble of planting above the 42nd parallel. And by 1846, Texas had been annexed by the United States and was embroiled in a war with Mexico. Although the Valley of the Great Salt Lake was claimed by Mexico and inhabited by Indians, church leaders decided to establish a new settlement there and use it to stage further colonization. Young led the migration west and along the way continued to seek the latest maps and information from other travelers. Still, Mormon leaders remained uncertain about the ideal location for their community until Young entered the Salt Lake Valley in July 1847 and famously declared, This is the right place. The pronouncement echoed the prediction of Joseph Smith 15 years earlier. Even so, it wasn't until they vetted the site over winter that they finally decided to stay. This episode of the Beehive Archive was contributed by Michelle Hill. Sources and past episodes may be found at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. Thank you for listening to Access Utah today on Utah Public Radio. Now we take you to our feature story. As Utah artists who want a career in the entertainment industry no longer need to relocate to Hollywood to make it big. UPR's Melissa Allison tells us about one up-and-coming Utah country group that is showcasing indie folk and indie pop. Utah has a reputation for being packed with talent, and with breakout artists like Shadezi, Imagine Dragons, and Royal Bliss, Utahns don't have to set their sights on Hollywood because, according to Isaac Halasima, native Utah and well-known music video director for Imagine Dragons hit video Gold, Utah is making a name for itself in an industry known for its competition. But I see her in the sky Near that river bend She's the moon She's dressed in white 
That's the group, the National Parks, out of Provo singing Bird's Eye from their first album, Young. Having formed just two years ago, they're already preparing to release their second album this spring. Oh, and did I mention they're doing this, having been on tour and working full-time jobs while going to college? Yeah, it's kind of been crazy. Mostly we tour during the summers, and so we don't go to Springer's summer term so we can hit the road and far as keeping the band going while we're in school, it gets pretty busy. It's like having another full-time job. Next to you, I see heaven's gates. So night don't end. That's Brady Parks, the lead singer. He says their fans might be surprised with their new album. This album could be a little bit different. We've shifted genres and gone into more indie pop than the last album, which was more indie folk. We've added a lot of different instruments to make it a really full sound. We've gotten bigger with this album, and I think people will be a little bit surprised in a good way, I hope. My knees are growing weak. I miss the one I loved when I was young. She's the only Park says they've partnered up with a company to include their fans in the process of making this new album. We've teamed up with this company called Pudge Music. It gives fans an opportunity to see what's going on during this whole process, and if they want to donate, they can do that to be a part of it, and there's some really great things that we'll be providing, such as a private concert. Park attributes their fast-growing success to people who saw their vision and jumped in with both feet. We want to be able to touch people and help them through our music in some way. In the music industry, there is sometimes not a really great influence. It can be kind of dark at times, and so we want to have music that really inspires and uplifts. Alasima and his peers say as long as Utah musicians maintain their strong work ethic and professionalism, coupled with talent, groups like the National Parks can find success in an underdog state. With Utah Public Radio, I'm Melissa Allison. Valery Gergiev is one of the most revered and controversial conductors of our time. We'll go to a concert in Rotterdam to hear Gergiev conduct this performance of the Violin Concerto No. 1 by Prokofiev. Plus, we'll hear a musical protest against Gergiev as an encore from violinist Lisa Batyashvili on the next Performance Today from APM. Thursday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread in Logan. Open for breakfast Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. and Saturdays at 8 a.m. Offering a selection of French pastries, a variety of sweet and savory menu items. Details at crumbbrothers.com. Your commentator Richard Radliff discuss how he learned at home a family law to govern nations. Consider the relationships here on Utah Public Radio. I have said that a successful society depends upon goodwill and the rule of law. In my boyhood home, we had four levels of what we knew as the family law. The first two levels were a matter of mutual goodwill. The first level was not properly law, but a family code of civility. Be good, friendly, respectful, and polite. Mom and Dad believed this code helped build good relationships and family harmony. Mom and Dad called the second level of our family law house rules, such as making our bed and being dressed and groomed before breakfast, or telling an adult when we were going out, where we were going, and when we would return. House rules promoted order, cooperation, and courtesies in our relationships. The third level was regulatory. Regulation applied to minor violations of goodwill, where oversight and perhaps intervention were required. The key concern was fairness, taught and enforced by our mom. Hers was a gentle tone, 
with a judicial firmness when necessary until goodwill could be restored. The fourth level of law at our house concerns serious problems of conflict or violations of virtue. This fourth level controlled our behavior and anything else that needed it, by force if necessary. The aim was to correct the course of very bad relationships. Dad was the controller. Mom might say, when your dad gets home, maybe he can help. Problem solved, peace restored. Dad was never mean, but he was effective. The most successful and happiest families in our little community seem to rely mostly on a code of civility and house rules, and very little on regulation and control. Theirs was a system of goodwill aimed at trusting relationships inside and outside the home. Regulation and control were required only occasionally and then to restore goodwill, not just to control behavior. Family members in those homes seemed free and confident to do almost anything they wanted within their code of behavior and the house rules. Other families had more conflict in their relationships. They relied more on regulation and a heavier hand of control. There were cries of, mine, I want it, or that's not fair. While the law imposed order and often gained success, these families struggle more than what we all consider to be the best families. A few families suffered continual disorder, discord, and chaos. These homes had no effective family law at all at any level. I have seen similar circumstances the world over in homes, organizations, and nations. Where relationships are healthy, established in mutual goodwill, civility and cooperation govern. People are freer, more successful, happier. Where there is conflict and ill will, regulation and control may be required. Life is more difficult. Where relationships are so bad that even enforced control is impossible, chaos thrives and tragedy follows. My point? Regulation and control alone are inferior government. In hostile, toxic environments, perhaps the only choice, but inferior. Chaos is worse. Either way, the battle for freedom is lost at a high cost. If we want security, liberty, happiness, and prosperity, anywhere, then it's our job to improve our relationships and to promote everywhere mutual goodwill through civility and cooperation. Mom and Dad, where are you? Consider the relationships. I'm Richard Ratliff. Thanks for listening. California is far and away the biggest agriculture state in this country, for now anyway. When you think about California without water, there's not a whole lot of agricultural potential there. I'm Kai Rizdahl, the Great Central Valley running dry. We'll tell you about farmers and the drought next time on Marketplace. Coming tonight at 7 on Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. 